Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we are streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you haven't already done so, make sure you are connected to us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, just to name some of those platforms. And with that same username, at Radio Islam USA. Before we get into our program today, we want to thank our sponsors, IFN and ICN, Islamic Foundation North, and Islamic Center of Naperville for their continued support. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, Radio Islam family, I am really pleased to have joining us on the line uh, Asma Odin. Uh, she is a lawyer and a scholar specializing in U.S. and international religious freedom, also writes and speaks on American Muslims and gender. She's the founding editor-in-chief of AltMuslima.com, executive producer for the Emmy and Peabody-nominated docuseries The Secret Life of Muslims, and is the author of When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. We are pleased to welcome her on the line. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome, Islam. Thank you for having me. So this is a... Uh, this is a phenomenal read, and I want the Radio Islam family to understand. You've got extensive experience in this, uh, with this subject matter. What was the, the impetus, first of all, for you to put this particular book together? Yeah, so, you know, I've been in the religious freedom space for almost a decade, as you noted. It's been a while. Um, and what's really unique about my advocacy is the fact that I do it on behalf of everyone, right? People of every religion, like the small religions no one's heard of, to all the way to the major ones, including uh, the majority religion in this country, uh, Christianity, including conservative strains of Christianity, which, as you know, are quite controversial these days in terms of um, their various religious liberty claims that they're bringing. Um, and my take has always been total and absolute moral and intellectual coherence in the way that this principle of religious freedom is defended. But in the course of that um, advocacy, I found that even though I'm being really coherent, there are a lot of people in the space who are not being very coherent or very consistent in the way they defend this, this right. And so I first heard the, the claim that Islam is not a religion in a 2010 case I was dealing with in Islamic Center in Murfreesboro. Um, the Islamic Center wanted to, essentially the community there wanted to um, build this this mosque and it's an initial initially the the county approved its plans um, there are laws in place at the local uh, state and federal level that um, basically sort of pave the way for houses of worship and make sure there's no discrimination against houses of worship in in zoning and land use issues um, so it was a pretty easy you know process until of course uh, some folks in the community in Murfreesboro found out about it and decided that they were going to bring uh, the, quite the robust um, opposition to it. And what followed was um, a court case in which that um, the granting of that approval was challenged on the basis that, quote-unquote, Islam is not a religion. It is instead a dangerous political ideology, these guys said. Um, and therefore, uh, the Islamic Center cannot have access to the same rights and protections that other houses of worship have. Um, so this was the first time I heard this statement made in this really explicit form. Now, you make a point to uh, to illustrate how judicial bias was a big part of uh, of, of presenting an anti-Muslim 
uh, anti-Islamic uh, framework uh, and to and to, I guess, to feed into the public sentiment of Mur Murfreesboro at that particular time. Right. Um, so in Murfreesboro, what happened with that um, sort of the, the, the Chancery Court level case was that, you know, after six days, the six day hearing in which the opposition made this ridiculous argument, um, which they put witnesses on the stand and asked them questions like, you know, uh, does a religion that abuses women or that promotes pedophilia, is, is that a religion? I mean, these are the sorts of questions that normally would never be allowed in a courtroom, yet the judge in that case allowed it to go forward. Um, and even that was not just once or twice, it was over the course of six days. And so that court actually ruled against the Islamic Center, but my own firm brought in, uh, sort of intervened and brought a federal court case in which the mosque prevailed. Um, and interestingly, this is like a small case going on in, in Tennessee, and yet the U.S. Department of Justice had to get involved and filed an amicus brief, making the argument that I would hope all the thing is already obvious, and that is that Islam is a real religion, and that the United States considers it a religion. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of the, the, the question of ju judges being biased, um, there is extensive now, I mean, there are multiple empirical studies that have been done that look at... Um, basically the rate at which Muslims bringing religious liberty claims win as compared to other people of other faiths, uh, and have found that Muslims are the least likely to prevail on their claims as compared to any other religion in America. Um, and the other exception only being the black separatist sects. Um, and, and so these researchers kind of went through, they're like, let's try to figure out what's going on here, because they, they see the numbers, right? But then they have to sort of explain the numbers. And they went through a number of different explanations. Well, is it because the claims are frivolous or is it because, you know, this is happening like in a prison context? Like what, what's going on here? And after sort of considering these various theories um, and rejecting them um, for various reasons, kind of like, well, that can't, can't be that because X, Y, Z. Uh, they came to the conclusion that the reason that Muslims are the least likely to win is because judges are essentially sort of um, holding the biases that that are sort of like part of their environment, right? Like Muslims are scary. Uh, Muslims as um, you know, Islam is scary. Islam is something that they don't want to um, essentially give a lot of power and freedom to, um, to in, order, in terms of free flourishing of Islam. Um, and so, you know, the judges will never say this. Like, I don't think the judges are even aware of their biases. Um, but, but the evidence seems to point to that. You know, when it comes to, um, I guess, the execution of power, how power is handled, uh, it becomes a concern, obviously, when you have people who run counter to the, the the freedoms and the liberties that our Constitution affords us. Right. You know, Congress will, you know, will not uh, create any law that, you know, that infringes upon the you know free practice of religion. But we also have people who are in positions of power that can make decisions that run counter to that. How important is it that we have uh, scholars and activists uh, such as yourself to to try to center us back towards our, our beginning? Yeah, absolutely. I think there is sort of an assumption. I mean, I think increasingly their activism is sort of um, becoming more widespread um, and vibrant in the U.S., I think, post uh, the Trump election. Um, but in general, I think there is a lot of Americans kind of just assume that some some of our fundamental liberties, such as uh, the right to religious freedom, uh, which, as I described in the book, is our first freedom. Because if you don't have the the right to, to act on your on your core beliefs, and all the other rights are pretty um, irrelevant, they sort of come second. Um, and but with the 
often a lot of Americans don't understand that those rights have to be defended and protected vigorously. They're not going to just sort of stay robust on their own because, as you noted, there's a lot of powerful people trying to limit those rights and or to selectively apply them. And so being engaged in that de- defense is, is absolutely important and not just um, the legal part of it, but also understanding a lot of the politics that go around, um, you know, our human rights advocacy. Right. You mentioned something in the book that I found that was really telling about the, I guess, the state of mind that non-Muslims have towards Muslims. In particular, um, I would imagine that the folks that were saying some of the things that you wrote were uh, were, in fact, white Christians. Um, as a person who advocates for people of all faiths uh, in all, you know, in, in respective, irrespective of, of gender and in all these different boxes that we check off. What are some of the responses that you have gotten from people when it comes to their defense of Muslims and, and the Muslims right to religious to, to practice, uh, practice our religion? So, I mean, you're referring to folks who might be opposed to that. Yeah, absolutely. Or... Absolutely. Because they gave different they gave, they, you know, basically said, well, this is why Muslims should not be covered under, um, you know, uh, under our protection of religious uh, freedom. Right. And so, I mean, I think that you can find some evidence of what what the argument is, just in the simple sort of argument that Islam is not a religion, it's a dangerous political ideology, right? So that's the, and what you see from that, and if you really talk to a lot of these people, the fear is really, A, um, security, security concerns, um, and more broadly, that if we give Muslims freedom, then they're going to use it to essentially, quote unquote, take over the United States. I'm sure we've all heard that phrase. You know, it, it came up in the context of um, it has come up in the context of the 43 states that have proposed bills to ban uh, Sharia arbitration um, under the so-called anti-Sharia laws. And in that scenario, it's always like Sharia is a dangerous political tool um, that essentially will permit uh, Muslims from uh, to, to take over the United States, and so there's just this fear that like somehow if you give freedom and liberty to Muslims, that they're going to a misuse it, and specifically they're going to misuse it in a way that's going to subvert American security and subvert American constitutional rights. Mm. You know, you introduced me to a term which I had not uh, seen before, which was denationalization, and this idea that as Americans as citizens, you know, of the United States, that we refer to the Constitution, you know, this is our our, our guiding document. And, you know, and, and if you're here, if you're a citizen, that that applies to you. But one of the arguments that uh, that I read was how people look at Muslims and then they take us out of the scope of the United States and begin to look at us, look at Muslim policy and, and Muslim majority countries uh, towards Christians or towards minorities. Uh, and at that point, we're not judged as as citizens. We're being judged based off of, you know, off, off of external uh, activities. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so the idea of denationalization is essentially, as you said, um, it's not thinking of Muslims as other religious groups like Christians and Jews, but more akin to American Nazis, right? People who are, again, the idea, again, being that this is um, a group that's opposed to our fundamental way of living, that's a, that's a danger, that if they're given power or even a little bit of liberty, it's not funny to talk about power, um, liberty and freedom, that they're going to use it to sort of fundamentally change the way 
this country is run. And so they need to be seen as sort of this, um, you know, uh, this sort of degenerate force um, that is only negative um, and which is undeserving of rights. Um, and so I think that's, I mean, that's the core of this idea, right? That when you say that Islam is not a religion, what you're doing is, is taking away a person's right to religious liberty, which is really a core issue that I, and I talk about this in the book as, because religious liberty is, is A, a fundamental human right, right? And human rights are something that all humans have because they're rooted in our human dignity. Um, we get them simply because we're human, not, we don't have to earn them, we don't have to prove ourselves worthy of them. It's just, we're human, we get human rights. And um, so when you see these, these arguments that where they're saying that Muslims shouldn't have religious freedom, Muslims shouldn't have human rights, I mean, the necessary, the next point is, that's underlying all of this is that Muslims are not human, right? Or they're not as human or fully human or should not be regarded as human um, at the, the same way that other people are. How much of this is the result of, of just repeated rhetoric against Muslims where the populace uh, in general, who, you know, as, as we know, you know, we, we comprise a very small portion of the population. We're like 1%, 1.1% of the population. And which means that most folks who have opinions of Muslims probably don't know a Muslim. Right. Mm -hmm. So in this effort to to make Islam not seem foreign, uh, could, could you talk a bit about that? Just, you know, just in how the the opinions are there, but there's not a concrete uh, an anchor point where they can actually say that I have an opinion that's based upon uh, real life experience and how detrimental that is. Right. I mean, so. Part of the process of denationalization is also that you don't see the person or the individual, right, it, or even the group or its individual sort of characteristics, as for instance, an American Muslim community, is just sort of more like you're taking all Muslims and you're lumping them up with Muslims worldwide. And so it's like whatever it is that you see abroad happening in Muslim-majority states or by Muslim actors, you're going to sort of just assume that we're one, one and the same, right? And so there's a lot of the, the talking points we've seen from various Muslim activists, this idea that Islam is not a monolith and that the Muslim community is not a monolith. Um, but it, you know, but with the, the point of denationalization specifically is, and this is that this isn't just about perception, but it's specifically like it then it sort of bridges over to the idea of rights. So it's like, okay, well, you know, you are part of them. You're not part of us. Um, you're not an American citizen that's do all the rights that other American citizens have because you're part of this other foreign group that, that's elsewhere. Um, and of course, this, this process and this, this denationalization is made possible, as you noted, by the fact that because we're a very small percentage of the American population, and even that is, is mostly sort of concentrated in the urban centers, um, you know, there's vast numbers of Americans who have never met a Muslim. Um, and so I think that's, that's obviously something that a number of various groups are trying to address through various sort of media initiatives, trying to get the, the, the narratives out there. Um, I think that there's certain, some interesting sort of facets of that narrative um, that I can get into separately. But um, I think, you know, a book like this is just kind of saying, hey, even if you've never met a Muslim, like even if, you know, like you don't know anything about Islam, um, it's sort of irrelevant to the question of, of of rights because the rights are they belong to people of every religious faith and people also who are atheists um and so i don't need you to understand islam know islam know a muslim like a muslim 
you know, I don't need all that for you to for me to convince you that you cannot be advocating for Muslims not to have rights. Right. Um, it's quite simple because you, you know, we know that they're human. That that everyone can agree. Um, and like I said, human rights are something that all humans have. Right. Now, uh, your book also addresses the. Um, not just the fear, but the fear that has been put into action um, regarding the uh, anti-Sharia uh, uh, laws. Um, mm-hmm. It somehow represents the the end of freedom for everyone else. So, yeah, could could you talk a bit about the anti-Sharia laws? Sure. Um, so I think, you know, so I, I, as I noted earlier, 43 states um, yeah. out of 50 have uh, proposed uh, or attempted to pass um these anti-Sharia laws, right? And some of them have succeeded in various forms um, in passing these laws. Um, so it's a pretty widespread effort. Uh, to date, there have been 217 bills introduced, um, a couple dozen in 2017 alone. Um, there was one proposed in Idaho in 2018. So while this sort of like this anti-Sharia law phenomenon has been going on for a while, it's by no means slowing down. If anything, it's sort of picking up pace. Um, and a lot of that is sort of like, I mean, all of it is underscored and sort of driven by this fear mongering about, again, Sharia uh, is not a, a religious law. It's actually a political ideology um, and it's a tool that, if, if permitted, is going to permit Muslims to, again, take over the United States. Right. And so or to or to uh, forcefully convert uh, other people to Islam, they're going to impo- and they're going to impose the Sharia on non-Muslims. Uh, people within the Muslim community are going to be subjugated by it, so on and so forth. Um, and so, what the book does is sort of like separate out the rhetoric and point out the reality as to how these things actually work. Um, and on the and what anti-Sharia laws do, in the very sort of they they just prohibit religious arbitration. It's a very sort of mundane issue. It's not these big old things that they're sort of promising. Um, it's they just prohibit the use of religious law in arbit- to arbitrate um, personal private matters. And the book goes into explaining, okay, look, even when you have arbitration, there are all these checks and balances put in place to make sure that it's never used in an abusive manner. Um, and also the fact that religious arbitration is so central to Jewish and um, certain Christian uh, practice that... Um, it's, you know, you begin to see the hypocrisy once again, that we're not like these other religious believers, that they can move forward with their religious arbitration. That's not a threat. But if Muslims engage in the same process, suddenly it becomes a threat. Mm. When you give these um, these clearly rational, logical, uh, thought out responses to people who have, you know, they hold negative views towards Muslims, towards Islam, uh, Islam and everything is, you know, all, all these terminology, all the terminology around Islam has been weaponized and and they come in with that type of mindset after you have calmly and articulately answered all their questions or responded to their, uh, to their points, have any of these people, have they moved away from the positions that they've had, or is there a deeper sense uh, that, that these things are not just about what's rational and logical, but that it's, it's rooted in something else. Yeah. I mean, so in terms of the arguments in the book itself, the book, um, is not out yet, and so I will be very curious to see when I go out there on the book tour and see how um, you know that engagement works and the types of responses I get. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But of course, I've written about a lot of these issues before in, in both like op-eds and in academic pieces and in, in the course of public speaking. As I note throughout the book, as I do public speaking on religious freedom and get these sorts of attacks all the time. Um, and so, yes, I would say yes and no. I think, I think you can you can sort of break down the opposition to like different camps. I think there's a camp that's so sort of sold on um, Islam being a threat that no rational statement or no facts are going to change their mind. In fact, um, they actually sort of dismiss um, a lot of the factual data as sort of quote-unquote fake news. <laughs> um, I think that's the sort of we're in a post-truth era, as you know, um, and so sometimes truth is not enough to convince people. Um, and so, you know, I mean, and, and for those people, the, the, what the book does is say, okay, even if you don't believe anything I'm saying, um, I'm trying to make the argument that, look, you know, if you do this to Muslims, like, this is going to come back to bite you. Like, it's just, and that's a huge sort of theme throughout the book. It's like, when you begin to limit rights for Muslims like that, and you start to shape and restrain the, con the contours of religious freedom, hey, guess what? Like, that's not permanently part of the law. Like, you have given the government power to regulate our actions in our religious practice. And they're not, once the government has power, um, it's not just going to use it against Muslims. Like, um, Christians already feel like they're, they're quickly becoming an unpopular group in, in America. I'm sure you've heard um, sort of the, about, like, evangelicals feeling that they're being persecuted, that their conservative claims are not being heard, mm -hmm. um, so on and so forth. I mean, we definitely heard a lot of that rhetoric under the Obama administration um, in, in response to various measures by President Obama. And that's what helped elect President Trump, who sort of like put himself out as a champion for evangelicals. So the idea is to kind of like also just sort of use the human rights discourse, but also see them that sense of like, you get it, right? Like, but once you get like the government and popular opinion turns against you, your rights are also threatened. And so if for no other reason, you should be refraining from limiting Muslims' rights because of a purely self-interest motive, right? Um, and so that's the other sort of like running theme throughout the book. Like, I'm trying to explain this to you. Here's the truth. Here are the facts. Here's the data. But even if you reject all this, uh, think about it from just a purely selfish perspective. But isn't that a harder argument for someone who sits in the majority, uh, who enjoys privilege? Isn't that a harder argument for them to digest as opposed to another marginalized group? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I think that's why we're seeing what we're seeing, because I think they think, you know, they don't think of themselves. So there's two parts to this. As a majority, some of these arguments um, take a lot more to sort of resonate with you because you do kind of just sort of are used to yourself as a majority. But as I noted, there is increasingly this sort of Christian persecution complex that has developed. Um, there are various studies, various studies that sort of show that Christians feel that they are the most persecuted group in America. And by Christians, more specifically, I'm talking about evangelical and conservative Christians. Um, who feel, for example, that, I mean, the demographics are changing. Uh, white Christian America has now become a minority. Um, so, like, mainline evangelical uh, Protestants are now a minority in the U.S. Um, they also, along with those demographic shifts, find that their social clout is also um, sort of diminishing. In terms of the various changes we're seeing with same-sex marriage and so on, they just, they're just like, well, we, our idea of America as a Christian nation, as a place where traditional Christian values was, you know, reign supreme, um, they're really sort of, I mean, it was an article I read the other day that sort of said that the, there's a shift from moral majority to persecuted minority, right? And so 
And so I think that this is sort of a really great time to be making the argument that I'm making because they're feeling that sense of like, we're losing a grip on, on power. Mm. But, but and, and I, I find uh, that it's also maybe synonymous with uh, America's history as a as a not just a Christian nation, but a, but as a white Christian uh, nation that allowed itself to be stratified off of, you know, off of race. Uh, and I find it probably let me I'm, I scratch my head a little bit at the idea that throughout the Bible Belt, and particularly someplace like Murfreesboro, uh, Tennessee, which has its own history. Of, uh, of, 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 of of lynchings uh, and many other spaces where you find a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment have that same type of history and share that same type of racial stratification um, that that is not a part of the discussion or a part of their uh, a part of the recognition of, of, of this group that has kind of just left the history behind and just looks at today on its own. Right. So it's, you're saying that they're overlooking this history because of, uh, for what, like the political sort of implications of Christianity or? Well, yeah, th- I think there certainly are implications for the misuse of the faith. Right. Um, and, you know, and as we know, there have been uh, travesties and, and, and horrors inflicted upon people in the name of religion, as well as politics and, and all t- types of other ideologies uh, throughout history. So, um but but America has its own history where Christianity was certainly misused right. And, right. and 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 racism, white supremacy infused, uh, allowed to be, I guess, grow out of that misuse. Today, the argument that's being made about the oppression or uh, persecution of of Christianity, of, of Christians, evangelicals in particular, um, who by and large a majority, um, I guess, we classify as white. They're they're picking up the story of Medias Race. You know, they're, they're picking up the story, you know, 30, you know, 300 pages in and not looking at how we got to where we are. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of political theology, right? And I, and I don't go into detail, but this, but somehow this, when they, when there's a view of Islam, it's like, well, if Islam has a political theology, it's somehow it sort of turned into Islam isn't a religion, it's politics, right? It's a political ideology. Right. But I'm, but the reality is that so many religions have what I call political theology. It's like the sort of the implications of what it means to be a believer, like in the real world, right? And some, sometimes this political theology is totally innocuous and hasn't led to any problems. Um, but in other cases, it has, not just in Islam, but also in, in Christianity, as you note. And so it's just sort of like, I sort of push the reader to think, and this is like the sort of the presumed um, Christian reader or the, the reader who, who might have sympathy or and understand Christianity as a religion and not anything else. It's like, well, if that's what your beliefs are about Christianity, then, then look at how, you know, look at some of the contradictions there, right? So lo- look at the, the various ways in the past and currently Christianity has been misused or sort of like the language of Christianity has been misused in the same way that the language of Islam is being misused today and in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but none of that, if that doesn't deter you from thinking of Christianity as a bona fide religion, then why is it deterring you from thinking that Islam is a real religion? You know, and so I, I create those parallels um, at various points in the book. Thank you so much. Um, like I said, I can't wait to uh, complete this. When's the official release? The official release is July 9th. Um, for those of you ordering it on Amazon, uh, it will ship on July 9th. Um, and, I, and I really do hope that all of your listeners order a copy of the book because only 
by really kind of um, having a lot of people buy the book, that's how the book is going to get a lot of attention and have the impact that it needs to have. Um, so again, the name, the title of the book is Why Islam is Not a Religion. Mm-hmm. Well, this is certainly much needed work. And uh, we thank you for your scholarship, for your advocacy, uh, and, and just, just, just the important uh, the work that you continue to do. And we will definitely be looking for July 9th, that release date. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us about this wonderful book. Great. Well, thank you for having me. Assalamualaikum. All right, Radio Islam family, we are going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back in a moment. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1458.